What do you think about the day of the Lord or the end of time or we sometimes say the second coming of Jesus? We describe this event in a number of ways. So when I bring that subject up, what do you think about it? What does it call to mind? Do you think about events? Do you think about emotions? What do you think about the second coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord, or the end of time as we know it? Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I want to welcome you to this edition of Faith Is. This is the place where we stretch and grow in God's direction, where we challenge ourselves with with important things because God wants us to learn important things, where we deliberately try to develop faith because we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and that confidence then results in a change to the way we think, changes to the way we behave, changes to what we understand about the Bible and about God. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, we're just a church like a lot of other churches in this country, a lot of good people, and we bring you these programs because we want to help you, help you grow in your understanding, help you grow in your faith and your confidence of trusting Jesus, and we hope it helps you. We meet on Sunday like you probably do with your church, and if you don't have a church, I'll encourage you to find one. Find a church that's closest to the Bible, not necessarily closest to your house. But find a church that's closest to the Bible and get involved and, and learn. There may be a lot of things that are new to you at that church. That's just a part of doing something new. But stick it out. I've heard people say it takes two years to get acquainted with the church, to feel really comfortable. Well, that's, that's possible. I think it depends on the church, depends upon the person. But get involved. Anyway, we're here to talk about some important things, and, and we want to— help ourselves think clearly and perhaps feel differently about these things. So if I use the word eschatology, some of you will say, Esca what? Well, don't be intimidated by words. Eschatology is simply the word we use to refer to studying the end of time or the day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus. And I only use the word to help us learn a new word. If it's unfamiliar, you may be familiar with it, but also to remind us that we should not be intimidated by words. We shouldn't be intimidated by the concepts those words represent. We should just try to learn what God wants us to understand. And so when I talk about eschatology or the end of time, I don't do it to intimidate us and say, oh boy, I do it so that we can make it a little less mysterious and understandable in the way the Bible wants us to understand it. And the same is true about the Bible. I don't want us to be intimidated by the Bible. A lot of people, they look at the Bible and they, they just don't know where to start and they don't know what to think. And, and they say, I can never understand it. And they quit. Well, that's because they're intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Sure, there are going to be plenty of things that we don't know about the Bible. And we can never know everything about the Bible. It's just, there's too much there. Nobody can ever know everything. But we take steps day by day, and we learn a little bit here, and we learn a little bit there. We connect this dot to that dot, and pretty soon we're beginning to make more sense of things. So plunge in, give it a try, don't be intimidated, and certainly do not give up. I know in all of this, some people try to make things too complicated. 
They point out the complexities, and sometimes I do, because there are complexities. Sometimes people try to make things more complicated to impress us about how they understand all these complications, and sometimes they make it more complicated than necessary. Well, sometimes you may think I do that, but really my idea is to try to take some of these complicated things and help us see through the complications so we can understand what it is that God wants us to know. See, I find it fascinating that the Bible was written for ordinary people like us. Yeah, it was. It wasn't written for scholars, although scholars have engaged the Bible, and that's fine. But it was written for people like us. And so apparently God thinks we can understand it, and apparently God expects us to understand it. After all, when you think about the history of the Bible, why would God go to so much trouble to give us the Bible if he didn't want us to understand it? So we're going to try to understand it better and better. We're going to engage it. We're not going to run away from it. Because I can't imagine God looking down from heaven and saying, I dare you to figure that out. I'm watching. Just try. I made it so obscure you'll never figure it out. Well, God doesn't say that. I think more likely he's saying, come on, give it a try. I've given it to you so you'll understand. There are things in there you probably will recognize and you already know. There's plenty of stuff in there that's new to you and you'll need to sort out. But it's everything you need to follow me and for us to live together forever. So we need to embrace it with that idea. We don't have to be intimidated. We don't have to be afraid. We just embrace it because God wants us to understand. He wants us to know him. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole point of the coming of Jesus. So we will know him and we know how to get along with him so that we all In the most common sense we understand it, we all go to heaven one day. So let's circle back to this idea of eschatology, because that's what we want to talk about today. Eschatology, that $3 word, maybe it's only $1.50 now, I don't know. But it's the study of the end of time, time as we know it. And it's a big word and a huge subject. Now, I'm still convinced God has given us the Bible so we would know what we need to know to be ready for the day of the Lord. He hasn't given us the Bible to keep us in the dark. He doesn't try to trick us. He doesn't try to fool us. He tries to help us understand what it is we need to know. And we're determined, aren't we? I think we are. We're determined to understand that, to do our best to understand what God has for us. So let's go back to my opening questions. What do you think about the day of the Lord? Or sometimes we call it the end of time. Sometimes we refer to it as the second coming of Jesus. What do you think about that? Maybe you think about events that you've heard will happen. Maybe you think, well, as we approach that, I need to be alert to what's happening in the world because maybe there's something that happens that if I know about it, I'll know Jesus is about to come. Sometimes people have asked me that question about something that happens in the world. Does this mean that the Lord is about to come? Well, I've never had an event take place that I thought meant that, if that helps you any. But I understand why people are thinking about that. So from the beginning, let's process a little bit what we what we think when we hear about this subject. Maybe, maybe it's also important and helpful for us to, to answer the question, how does thinking about the end of time make you feel? When you think about the coming of Jesus, do you feel anxious, afraid, 
Or maybe you feel anticipation. Maybe you're excited that, wow, he's coming. Can you imagine? Maybe you feel relief. Just a sense of, oh, finally, we won't have to put up with, go through all of this turmoil and all of this struggle. He's going to come and put an end to evil and allow us to live with him forever in heaven. And you feel relief at that. Or maybe maybe when you think about it, you, you have real palpable hope. Real hope that it's going to be soon. Or we'll finally get to meet Jesus. Or however you think of hope. Maybe you, maybe you respond with hope. Well, however you think about it or feel about it, today we're going to take a bite-sized look at this idea of the day of the Lord. We won't begin to answer every question. We won't cover every possible angle of things. It's entirely possible, so relax, that you'll go away with even more questions than you came with. And that's fine. I've noticed over and over again, every time that I take a serious look at the Bible and it answers some questions for me, it always surfaces other questions. But we're going to take a look, a serious look, at what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. We're going to learn along with them so we can think about and anticipate the day of the Lord from a better frame of mind. Because he had some specific things to say to them and to us. So I want to read this rather brief passage, but it's a little bit complicated, so you'll need to follow along carefully or perhaps read it in a translation of your choosing. I'm using the New Revised Standard Version updated edition that just came out not too many months ago. And I do that because I look at different translations from time to time. And so I decided I would use this one for a while and see how it, how it strikes me. I do that both out of curiosity, but also because it helps me take a fresh look at the Bible when I use a, an English translation that I haven't used for a while or even before. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. As the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, or sorry, as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, 
so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. Well, there's a lot there, and we want to plunge in and, and unpack some of it. So let's, let's take a look and see what, what's going on here. We already said that this is a letter to the Thessalonian church, regular people who had gone through some rather difficult times, probably more difficult times than we've gone through. And in the second chapter, the writer starts out by saying he's talking about the coming of Jesus and our being gathered to him. Now, he uses rather straightforward language for that day when he talks about the coming of Jesus. It was a reference to the coming and the same language that was used to refer to the coming of a king or some other important person who might visit a city. So it wasn't anything unusual. They would have understood what that meant. That meant preparations. That meant celebrations. Everything had to be done to suit that ruler or king because in those days, if a city didn't welcome that king appropriately, there could be serious consequences. So they understood that that was the language, and they were to look forward to the coming of Jesus in that similar way. We do that in our time. If a, if a president visits our city, a lot of preparation goes into that time. Sometimes cities fix up, clean up areas, so they put on their best appearance for that visiting president. So they understood that, and we can understand that. We get ready for the coming of Jesus. He talks about when he comes, that will be gathered together to him. Well, what that means is he's going to take the church to be with him. And so he comes to, in a real sense, take us home, to gather us to be together, which will be a great reason for celebration and relief. He goes on to say that he begs them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from, though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. So he says, don't be upset. Don't be anxious. Don't be alarmed. Jesus has not come. He's going to go on to explain why that's so. He says, no matter how you have heard, whatever you might have heard, he names three possible ways, spirit, word, or letter. He says, whatever has gotten into your head, it's not reason to be alarmed because he's not already come. goes on to say, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, referring to the coming of Jesus, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, it's fairly obvious what's going on here, at least in part. Uh, some of it may be a little bit more mysterious, and that's often the case when the writers of the Bible use apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic references. And so some of that's going on through this this story or this portion of the Bible we're looking at today. But he clearly says, don't let anyone deceive you, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Rebellion. Now, what do you think of when you think of rebellion? Well, you might think of a number of different things. You might think of revolt. You might think of an incident where someone rebelled against someone else. You might think of a rebellion where a group of people rebelled against a ruler, a government of some kind. You might recognize that the United States was formed out of a revolution, a rebellion against the King of England. Well, that's one understanding of rebellion, and that's not inconsistent with the original language, but there's a little other possibility that we should consider. 
Now, I don't know why translators choose the words they use. They do that for a number of reasons, and I respect their expertise on that, and I'm in no position to challenge that. But I also know that this idea of rebellion as it is used here comes from a Greek word that also refers to apostasy. So rebellion here likely is referring more to what we think of as apostasy than to an event or a war or something like that that we tend to associate with rebellion. We get this idea because later on in the context of this section we're looking at, we see that people are apostate. Now what that means is they've turned away from from Jesus and they refuse to believe the truth that he tells them. So when you turn away from Jesus, you can rightfully be described as apostate, or you have rebelled against Jesus. So you see, the idea of apostasy and rebellion, in some respects, are two sides of the same coin. But I think it's helpful here to think about that Jesus won't come until apostasy first comes, and then the lawless one is revealed. So there will be unbelief or refusal to believe the truth, and then the lawless one is revealed. Now, the lawless one is a bit of a mystery here, but many of the people who work on this and many of the people that I studied talk about this person that's referred to here. In some respects, it's referred to as an entity in this passage. But this, let's say person because it's better to, and, and probably more accurate to think of it that way. So this lawless one, what does that mean? Well, probably is a reference to what we usually call the Antichrist, someone who is against Jesus. Now, we get that idea because he's described as the lawless one, which is a fair description and consistent with other passages in the Bible. We get that idea because he's destined for destruction, and we get that idea from the Bible. The lawless one is definitely destined for destruction. We also get that idea because he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Okay, so that's a pretty good description of what we call the Antichrist. So it's a very significant statement that, that the writer's making here. First, there has to be a rebellion characterized by apostasy, and then the lawless one is revealed. Now, it's also important to understand that when the Scripture talks about someone being lawless, it's probably not what we first think about. We think of someone breaking the law that we have. We have laws against stealing and so forth. But when the Bible talks about lawlessness, it often is referring to someone who does not follow the covenant as God put it down, described it to us. So Moses was given the law of God, and he passed it on to the people, and keeping covenant meant obeying that law. So that if you were lawless, you were someone who did not keep the covenant. That's an important distinction, because that's the way the Bible uses that word a lot. And clearly, the Antichrist would not keep the covenant. He was against, is against, everything that Jesus is for. But it's also interesting to help us kind of keep that in perspective, because it says here that this Antichrist, this lawless one, exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. 
Well, that did happen a time or two. Emperors would do that. Rulers would do that and attempt to set themselves up in the temple in Jerusalem. So they would have had some familiar with it, some familiarity with this. They would have heard about this. It's also interesting on one such occasion when the temple was desecrated, and it was desecrated by someone commanding that a offering be put on the altar that was unclean. They were so, so they were to sacrifice a pig on the altar, the holy altar of God. That was for the sacrifice of lambs. Very specific instructions from God. Well, this desecration took place, and as part of this, Jewish people were forced to eat pork, and they were told, no uncertain terms, that they were not to eat pork. But some of them did that freely, and in the literature describing what took place, they're described as lawless. In other words, they violated the covenant. Not a good thing at all. They were later, when this was all sorted out, and God's people had the authority, they were later executed because they were lawless. They cooperated with this evil. So we get the idea here that this is clearly someone, clearly someone, clearly against Jesus and everything he stands for. So Paul goes on after having described that the rebellion has to take place and the lawless one has to be revealed. He says, verse 5, Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was with you? And you know what is now restraining him, so that he may be revealed when his time comes. And, and I'm thinking when I'm reading that, uh, no, we don't know that. We weren't there. Would you mind telling us? And of course, we don't get that information. But he reminds the Thessalonians that they know, and they apparently know something we don't know. So the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, verse 7, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And, and that's another question. Who's restraining this lawlessness? Well, there's a lot of talk about that, a lot of speculation about that. We don't have a clear explanation of that. Some people think that it was an angel that was doing God's work, and God commanded them to restrain it. Other people think it's more the idea of, of nations keeping law and order so the person can't overwhelm people with his what's described here as lawlessness or apostasy. Uh, maybe we'll see some more connection to that in a little bit. I think you'll catch on to that when we get toward the end of this section. But at any rate, that this lawless one is being restrained until the time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, verse 7, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. So get that. There's, there's apocalyptic reference there to other literature referring to the breath of God or the mouth of the Lord and the power related to that. But don't miss this. So this Antichrist puts himself up against Jesus, even to put himself up in the temple of God, but along comes Jesus at his appearing, and it says here, the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth. Now, when I read that, now you got to understand I'm kooky sometimes. But I read that and I said, wow, destroy him with the breath of his mouth? That is some bad breath. Well, yeah, but not like that. Yeah, it means that look at the power 
of Jesus compared to this one who sets himself up as a God, as a rival God to Jesus. Jesus comes along and with no effort at all, simply exhaling, destroys this evil. Now that's pretty cool. And that's a lot of power. And we should take encouragement and comfort from that. Sometimes people think evil is so strong. Well, I understand the effects of evil are horrible. We see a lot of evil things take place. But evil is nothing, nothing compared to the power of God. Has no chance, none at all, against Jesus. Annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. So Jesus shows up and his coming and his exhale annihilates this destroying one who puts himself up as a rival God. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now here, this is really, really something important. So we've talked about rebellion or apostasy, which means turning away from the truth and and not believing in Jesus, turning away and, and rejecting belief in Jesus. We've talked about a restrainer who restrains evil, but one day will stop restraining and the lawless one will appear and be annihilated by the exhale of Jesus. And now, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So, I said earlier that I thought the use of the word rebellion was better understand as an apostasy, a rebellion against the truth or a turning away from Jesus. Maybe not a rebellion as we think of it in terms of a revolt or an incident related to a rebellion. And here's where we get that idea. Because it says that Satan uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to believe the truth that God tells them about themselves, about the world, about evil, and about the person and work of Jesus and how he came to overcome all of that to pay the penalty for evil, to crush evil at the cross. They refuse to believe all of that. And Satan uses all the things he can use, power, signs, lying wonders, and every wicked deception to get people to follow him. Now think about one of those descriptions there. There were, what, four of them. Think about it when he says lying wonders. Think about what that idea of lying wonders means. Think about our world and all the lying that's going on and all the references to lying. Think about all the times that people are deceived and and don't know what's going on and should know, but they're just simply kept in the dark. People lie about stuff and they get away with it and people are deceived. Think about the talk of misinformation. Now, that talk about misinformation is simply an attempt 
to deceive a whole bunch of us, to fool us into believing something that isn't true. Now, we've always had, as thinking people, the need to separate truth from error. We've always had those challenges. But we've never lived in a time, in this country at least, where people have tried to manipulate what we believe the way it's going on now. We've never seen the institutions that we thought we could trust lie to us like they have. We've never seen the deception from so many places, including in the media, the mainstream media that tries to tell us one thing when we're trying to sort out the truth and they want to tell us, no, that's a lie. You have to believe this that we're telling you. Instead of putting it all out there and helping us to understand and allowing us to sort it out for ourselves. It's really quite bizarre what's going on and really quite unsettling. But we want to look at that through the eyes of this scripture because this whole idea of following the truth really does matter. And I think that's at the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate to them and to us. Because there's a real problem if we refuse to engage in the pursuit of the truth. And we want to talk a little bit more about what that means, but we're going to take a break. We're going to come back to it. We're going to try to make sure we can make sense of what's going on here so we can be the people who follow the truth because the Bible says the truth will set us free. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. You hang on. We'll be right back and talk some more about this in just a minute. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. 
Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we stretch each other in God's direction, and we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been stretching that understanding and that trustworthiness as we've looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and as we've talked about the second coming of Jesus, or sometimes referred to as the day of the Lord, or the end of time as we know it. We've reminded ourselves up to this point that we don't need to be alarmed and concerned about it. We can relax. We haven't missed it. Jesus has not returned. We don't need to be alarmed or shaken up about that. And we don't need to be deceived by listening to information that's not correct. We can trust what the Bible tells us. We were reminded that a couple of things have to happen before Jesus returns, and we don't know this in terms of concrete things. We can't put it on the calendar and say this is this and this is that. But we do know that it says that a time of rebellion has to come first and then the lawless one needs to be revealed. And generally we understand the lawless one to be the Antichrist. We talked about rebellion in terms of is it an event or something like that, a revolution like the war for independence in this country. Or is it apostasy? And I suggested that both the context of this passage and the use of the word that we here see translated rebellion could refer to apostasy or the turning away from Jesus, the refusal to believe in him or to believe what he says. I said we'd talk about that some more, and we were just about to get into that when we took our break. And so I want us to take a look at, at that toward the end of the section, and I want to read a couple of those verses just to bring us back up to speed on the context here. So let's start with verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So Satan is clearly, clearly making every attempt to deceive people who refuse the truth. And it mentions specifically power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception. So refuse to believe the truth and you set yourself up for deception by Satan using all kinds of amazing things to get you off track. And we talked about the prevalence of lies in our day, and that should definitely get our attention. And it should definitely help us be motivated to seek out that which is true and right. So, go back to verse 9. Let's take it a little bit farther. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, and here's, the, here's what it says, because they refused to love the truth, okay? For that reason, for this reason, verse 11, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. Now, it's a very fascinating way that is said there, but it's very significant and very important. So it says, because they refused to believe the truth, because they refused to believe the truth that Jesus said, to believe the truth that is represented by Jesus because they turned away from what we sometimes say is God's truth, because they refused the truth. God sends them a powerful delusion. Now, I want you to make sure you understand that God is not setting up some people 
to be fooled. God is not picking out certain people to deceive. No, he is saying because they turned away from the truth, he is allowing them the consequences of that choice, which is a powerful delusion. So they get caught up in their own nonsense by refusing to believe the truth. And so that refusal leads them to be more and more deluded, leading them more and more to believe, as it says in verse 11, believe what is false, so that all who have not believed but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. See, they refuse to believe. They want to believe what they want to believe, so they refuse to believe the truth. They turned away in their own direction, embracing what they wanted to embrace. They deluded themselves, and God gave them what they asked for in a delusion. They believe what is false. They did not believe the truth, but they took pleasure in unrighteousness. See, when you refuse to believe the truth because you want to take pleasure in unrighteousness, then you will be condemned. So we as Christians should not think that God is taking delight in condemning them. He is recognizing their delight in refusing him and their delight in unrighteousness. And so they are meriting what they ask for. They are becoming condemned. It's really a chilling statement. So you see, when we talk about rebellion and the refusal to believe what Jesus says, it leads to a consequence people don't want. So we who are followers of Jesus should remember from that that it's very significant that we be faithful to that which is true and that we believe the truth. Now, I often think about that truth in two ways, just so that we can understand that. Often when we talk about the truth, we use a capital T referring to truth, referring to Jesus, because Jesus was and is the embodiment of that which is true. So we often use, or I often use, a capital T to say truth in that instance. We also refer to truth as opposed to falsehood by using the word truth with a small t. So we believe that which is true. Now we live in a time, and I don't need to tell you much about this because it's obvious, when people have said they want to believe their truth. In other words, they want to believe what they want to believe, and everybody else is supposed to respect that. And that is exactly what is described here by the writer of Thessalonians, that they refuse to love the truth, Jesus, and they refuse to accept that which is true. They insisted on having their own truth, their own definition of that which is true. And so they are deluding themselves and God is giving them over to that delusion. They are delighting, taking pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, they're delighting in sin. They are lawless. They are refusing to follow the covenant, the law that God has given us. They're refusing to do what God says. They won't follow the Ten Commandments or anything else that God says. And so they set themselves up to be condemned. It is truly a sad state of affairs. And we who are Christians, we have to very, very vigorously commit ourselves to that which is true. We have to commit ourselves to to truth as embodied by Jesus, and we have to commit ourselves to that which is true that we can see right before our eyes. So let's talk about one example of that. 
This whole gender dysphoria stuff has gotten a lot of attention. And people who are born male now sometimes say, no, I'm really female, even though I was born with all of the physical attributes of being a male. Or sometimes people are born female with all those physical attributes, but they say, no, I'm really a male, that I'm in the wrong body. Well, that's palpably ridiculous. And can you imagine the confusion those people go through when they're trying to convince themselves that they are something that everything about them physically tells them they are not. There's a huge, can we say the word cognitive dissonance going on there, or there is a huge delusion at work when they refuse to believe what is plainly true and go in the wrong way. And when it says here that God, that God sends them a powerful delusion, we understand what that means because here they are denying what is obviously true. And that is a rebellion against God. That's the rebellion referred to earlier in this passage that I said we should think of as apostasy, the refusal to believe that which is true. So I think we have some some clarity on what to think about in terms of the end of time. We have clarity that when Jesus comes, he's the powerful one. He'll take care of all this stuff. It's so easy for him. All he has to do is exhale. And he will destroy the Antichrist. That's the end of that. We have to take courage in realizing that he hasn't come, but one day he will, and that we can trust that hope, and we can trust him, and we can keep our eyes fixed on him, and we can keep faithful to the truth, and we should not let anyone, anyone convince us otherwise. We have to remain faithful to that which is true and right, and we can trust him. We can have absolute confidence that what Jesus is talking about is so. Well, that's a little bit of information related to the end of time. Let's talk about some other things today, because I keep thinking, and I've thought 10 things, and I thought, well, maybe that'll give us a little a little breath of some other perspective on some things as, along with what we've done so far. So I was listening to a, to a guy talk on a podcast recently, and he referred to something, and he said, it was some shibboleth. And that got my attention real quick, because that's an amazing reference to a Bible story. Do you remember that? Anybody out there remember that reference to the word shibboleth? Well, it's really quite fascinating and and really quite stunning, because I I, I mean, I I heard that, and I thought, wait a minute, does he know what he's talking about? And, And sure enough, Uh, He did. I could tell from the context of what he said. And he was talking about this idea of shibboleth. And and so I want to tell you the story about that because you may hear that. But I also want to tell you, isn't that remarkable how in a conversation totally unrelated to the Bible, he uses a reference that comes right out of the Bible. So what happened was there was a a battle between the men of Gilead and the men of Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated the men of Ephraim, but the guys in the Ephraim army tried to escape, and they were trying to escape across the Jordan River, but the men of Gilead took control of the crossings. And so they were trying to sort out who was one of them and who was one of the enemy. So they did something very simple and very, very brilliant. So there was a word, shibboleth, that the two groups of people pronounced differently. In Ephraim, 
they could not pronounce the SH. Okay, it became S. The Gilead guys, they could say Shibboleth. The Ephraim guys couldn't. They said Sibboleth. So the way they could identify someone from Ephraim at this river crossing, at the, at the crossing on the Jordan River, was to ask them to pronounce the word Shibboleth. And so the Ephraim soldiers would come to the crossing and the Gilead guys that were there would say, pronounce the word Shibboleth. And they would say, Sibboleth, and they were immediately identified as the enemy. Well, that's an interesting story and fascinating, but it's really interesting because I wanted to point out how, how much the Bible has to do with modern times and how sometimes we overlook some things that, that the Bible teaches us that, that come up in everyday conversation. Really fascinating. So, the other thing I was thinking about, and I really was thinking about this before I got into the study of Second Thessalonians, but... but it, is, it needs to be said again. It's just simply stunning how the world we live in is it abandoning the truth and turning away from the truth, even when it's obvious, and how quickly people are embracing lies because that's what they prefer to believe. It's just stunning to me. Now, we must not get caught up in that. We need to stay faithful to the truth, and I talked about that probably enough already. But there's another concept, and maybe this is why I was thinking about it, that that comes to mind. And the third thing I was thinking is that this whole idea of social justice is a concept that assumes the existence of truth. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean this. If there is a real concept of justice, that some things are right and some things are, are wrong, then there has to be a clear agreed-upon understanding of that which is right. In order to have an agreed-upon understanding of that which is right, we have to say that is what was that is what's true. Because something can't be right and wrong at the same time. So that requires us to identify some things as true and right. And so if we're going to have justice, we have to have truth. But so many times, the very same people that cry out for social justice want to define other things in all kinds of crazy ways that resist the concept of truth. So I think it's important for us to come to grips with this idea. Social justice as a concept assumes the existence of truth. And we need to remember that as we have our conversations with people and as we process what goes on out there in the world. Fourth thing I've been thinking is that, and I guess I'm going to say this kind of bluntly, so I hope that's okay. Uh, maybe you want to fasten your spiritual seatbelt a little bit. But I think Christians have to get over themselves when it comes to issues of public policy, even things that people call politics. You know, the Bible doesn't give us any out on certain issues. We who are followers of Jesus need to engage in all of what's going on so that we can bring the truth that the Bible tells us to bear on all of this stuff. But every now and then I, I get the impression that some Christians think they're they're too good for that. They don't want to get involved in the messy of that. They're, they sometimes will say, well, I'm a citizen of a different kingdom, and I don't need to bother with that. Well, I get it that we're citizens of the kingdom of God. I think that's great. But there's no place in the Bible that says we're to abandon the people around us and give them over to evil. In fact, doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to overcome evil with good? So we need to get over that nonsense that that it's messy and so it's beneath us. It's messy, but that's why we need to get involved. Every messy situation Jesus encountered, he improved. And if we, the people of God, the church, 
are the visible presence of Jesus in the world today, and I think we are, then we need to engage that and not shrink from it. We need to get over our squeamishness or our, or our excuses to stay out of it. We need to get involved and stay involved. And that brings me to the fifth thing, I think, and that means we need to vote. Again, every now and then people will say, well, I don't want to vote, and they'll give a whole litany of reasons. Maybe I'm not part of this world. I don't need to be a part. I don't want to be a part of the system of evil. All they do is bad things. da 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 Okay? Again, we have a responsibility before God to engage in the world we live in and to vote. Yes, I know the Bible and the people in the Bible times that followed Jesus had no opportunity to vote. But that doesn't change our opportunity and our responsibility. I'm convinced that God expects his people to get involved in the place he's put them and to be involved to whatever extent they can to do the right thing. And the right thing is to pay attention to the issues, to speak out truthfully about them, and in the very least, to vote. And I think, yes, Christians have challenges when it comes to which candidate should I vote for. There are never, have never been, will never be perfect candidates for us to choose. We are all flawed people. We understand that from the Bible. There's no mistaking that. We just have our problems. But I'm convinced we can vote for the candidates that will lessen evil. Maybe you don't like any of the candidates that you have the opportunity to choose from. That's, that's too bad. That's why we have a primary is to try to choose better candidates. But that day has passed. We're here at the general election. On, on November 8th, we will make our choices. And we as Christians should vote for the candidates that will lessen evil. You can check their policies, see what they believe on the issues, try to understand what drives their decision-making, what moral authority guides them. You might not always like the moral authority you discover. Trust me, there are some that I don't like the moral authority they seem to follow. Because some of them, the moral authority is public opinion, and they just go whichever direction people tell them to go. Well, that doesn't help us have a moral compass for what is right and what is wrong. But I still can evaluate the candidates, and I can come to a conclusion about which one will lessen evil. And there are more and more websites and other places for us to find information on the candidates. And if you can't find it there, and sometimes you can't, call some people, find out who knows, find out who you trust, and they will tell you what's going on. I've had to do that. I found out some very insightful information that way. And I was glad because I couldn't know everything about everybody. And what I found on their websites told me nothing. They just told me how good they were. That's what I expected to, to see there. But they wouldn't even... They wouldn't even be specific on some of those websites about what they believed about certain issues. So, yes, vote and vote for the candidate that will lessen evil. Now, number seven will surprise a whole bunch of you. Uh, doesn't surprise me, but I think I miss cold weather. Yeah, I've lived in Florida for a long time. I've kind of gotten, if not used to hot weather, at least at peace with it. Never been a person who loved hot weather. We've had 90-degree weather lately, and I'm thinking, it's November, and yet here it is, and I was thinking earlier this week that I just miss cold weather. It'd be nice for it to be cold for a change. 
Well, we may get some colder weather. I don't know that it'll ever be really cold here. Sometimes we get down to 32 degrees. Uh, you might call that cold, uh, and I agree. But I miss it. And all of you who are going through cold weather now and saying, oh, here comes winter. I know you think I'm crazy. I told you already I am. But I miss cold weather. I also think I heard this crazy idea recently. Just crazy. And the more I think about it, the crazier it is. But someone put out there, they said that we who, are, who preach should preach to get fired. And I thought, what? Preach to get fired? What good does that do? Well, I know what they were saying. They were wanting us to preach the truth. Well, I, I believe that too, don't you? I think it is our responsibility to look at the Bible, to hear from God, and to explain to people what God says straight up. We don't need to hide things from them. We need to be straight up about what God says. And, and clearly, God says there's evil and there's good, and we should follow that which is good. I mean, it's not really complicated. Sometimes we want to make it complicated, but it's not complicated. But the idea of preaching to get fired doesn't make any sense to me. Why, why, what good does it do for, to God's people if, if a preacher gets fired? Wouldn't it be better to preach so that God's people will come to agree with God? Well, that's what I think. Will everybody? No, probably not. But I'm going to do my best to help people think along with me so they can come to the same conclusions that I come to when it comes to what God is saying to us. But please, if you hear that, and please tell your pastor not to preach to get fired. Preach to proclaim God's truth in a way that will help God's people come to grips with it and follow God faithfully. I think number nine, and this is this surprised me a little bit when I was thinking of this because it just kind of came to me all at once one time. But I, I think we're seeing a renewed interest in the Bible. Now, I, I can't really give you a lot of reasons why I think that. I've noticed in people's attitudes a renewed interest. I've noticed in people's willingness to hear what God says a renewed interest. I've just noticed it here and there a little bit. And I'm really encouraged because it seems to me that we need a renewed interest in the Bible. Now, to be sure, it's this renewed interest is maybe like Elijah described. You remember when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and he was sitting up there on the mountain looking out and he had his servant look out to see to see if rain was coming. And the servant finally came back and said, yes, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand. Well, I see renewed interest in the Bible about the size of a man's hand, but at least it's there. And I would encourage you, if you haven't been reading the Bible, to start. If you don't know where to start, start with the Gospel of Mark. It's relatively short. It's very clearly written. It's got a lot of information about Jesus. And the central character in the Bible is God, particularly the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. So read the Gospel of Mark. You can go on to read some other places after that. But if you read the Gospel of Mark 10 times over, you will go a long way toward getting a handle on what it means to follow Jesus. So read the Bible. Find an English translation you like and understand and read it. And I think number 10, I sound like a broken record, if you remember what a broken record was or is. But I want to say again, it's my last opportunity to admonish you before the election. As a Christian, Go out and vote 
and vote consistent with your biblical values, vote to lessen evil. Our vote will not annihilate evil. We learned that from Thessalonians chapter 2, that it's when Jesus comes and he exhales that he will destroy evil. Quite a vivid image, don't you think? But we can vote now to overcome evil with good by voting for the candidates that will lessen evil. When there are propositions on the ballot, vote for the proposition that will lessen evil. Ask God what that means in your situation and trust his guidance. Talk to your Christian friends. Talk to people who have insights on things that can explain it to you. Pray about it and then vote. Do not miss your opportunity to lessen evil by electing good candidates and the candidates that will do more good than harm. At the very least, we can do that. And trust me, there are some candidates, there are at least some in Florida, that are followers of Jesus and that I'm excited we have the opportunity to vote for and and hopeful that God will actually give us good candidates and good situations moving forward. So take courage, take heart, have confidence. The Lord is coming. Evil will be destroyed. We can trust him. We can anticipate that with excitement and enthusiasm because we can follow the truth and we can be set free by the truth and we can develop faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'll talk again next week. See you then. Thank you.